Amen. Hey, good morning, y'all. Is this on? Okay. Thank you for those kind words, Richard. Now, y'all need to lower your expectations a little bit. (laughs) Um, But again, my name is Ed Griffin Hagen. I am uh, one of the pastors on our staff uh, at Church on the Trail. I'm so thankful that y'all are here today, and there's lots of places that you could be on Sunday mornings. Um, but I think the Lord has us all together here for a reason. I think he's got a message for us today that is strong and powerful and, and, and it's all about, you know, it's about the mighty name of Jesus. Now, let me say one thing before I jump into the message and that is this, we were talking about, Josh was talking at the very beginning about, um, uh, about the, an outdoor worship service that we're having, which is right down the street across the on Flat Rock Road, right across the trail on the church property, which is to the left right there. And it is at 10 o'clock on the 31st. I think he said 1030, but he meant to say 10 o'clock. And we're having a work day just to kind of get the chairs put out and get some stuff done on the Saturday before. Somebody tell me what time that work day is. Is it 10 o'clock? Where's Lorna? She is the keeper. 10 o'clock. Look at there. See how smart we are? I just don't have eyes in the back of my head like my wife does. But 10 o'clock, uh, if you can be there, you know, it shouldn't take that long. We'll get, we'll get stuff done in an hour or two and be done. So that's next, uh, is that next Saturday or Saturday after? That's, that, that's whenever it is. So I should clearly not be the person that does announcements. But look, last week Richard walked us through and he, he, he left us with a cliffhanger, you know, and he was talking about uh, Stephen gets snatched up. Stephen's one of the very first deacons, if you remember, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And so Stephen gets snatched up and the false accusations are made against him and, and, and uh, the synagogue of the freedmen, it was all these people and the saints before the Sanhedrin and all this stuff's going on. And, and you know, the, if you remember the very last, the very last thing that Richard said, the very last part of chapter six, let me get my spectacles on. If you remember in verse 15, it says, everyone sitting in the Sanhedrin, we remember what the Sanhedrin is, is is made up of the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and they're like the court. They're the high court, the Jewish high court, but they're the court. And it says, everyone sitting in the Sanhedrin stared at at Stephen and saw that his face looked like the face of an angel. And that's not some some weak, frail, mealy-mouthed sort of the way art has depicted angels. Stephen was ferociously courageous, ferociously courageous. And so his, his face kind of sh- uh, shined like an, like an angel. That gets us right up, y'all, to, uh, to chapter 7. Verse 1 says this, And the high priest, which was probably Caiaphas, who was the same guy that had questioned and condemned uh, the Lord himself, condemned Jesus. So, verse 1, and the high priest, probably Caiaphas, he says, are these things so? He's talking to Stephen, are these things so? Did you do it? Did you speak blasphemy against Moses and about about God and about, and did did you blaspheme God's word? Did you blaspheme the Torah? Did you blaspheme the temple? You know, did you say that Jesus was going was gonna to wreck this place and destroy all of our traditions, right? Because they're all about the traditions. Did you say that? Did you do that? 
And if you did, dude, have you lost your mind? Now, that, he didn't really say that, but, but y'all, that's what he's saying. And I, I picture, we're going to run through the first 53 verses of chapter 7. And this morning, Tripp's like, we're going to be here until 5 o'clock. Well, no, I'm going I'm to paraphrase, you know, the revised Ed translation or something of the first 40 verses. But here's what I picture. It's like I picture, they say, did you do it? And I picture Stephen sitting over here, you know, and he's got shackles on. And they, did you do it? Did you say it? False testimonies be all over the place. And I picture Stephen just standing up and just saying, well, let me tell you about my Jesus. And then he goes into this, this really the longest sermon outside of Christ's words himself, the longest sermon uh, that's recorded, at least the words recorded in scripture. And so I want to run through most of his words. He starts in verse two, running through, through verse eight. And I assumed it, if, if you don't have one of these, if you would raise your hand, we'll get one into your hands. But at the beginning in verse 2 uh, through verse 8, he begins, Stephen begins with the, with the birth of Israel and, and God's promises to Abraham. And, he, you know, and, and this is, now remember, I'm going to pop kind of in and out of this. I'm going to be Stephen. Lonnie told me to channel my inner Stephen. I don't really even know what that means, but I'm going to try to do, I'm going to try to do, by, do right by, by Stephen's boldness, right? And Stephen's courage in front of this, uh, this court, this Sanhedrin. And so, but I'm going to pop in and out of it a little bit. So Stephen says the, you know, the Lord showed up to Abraham and he showed up to Abraham when he was still, and you can follow this along, but it, I've got the scripture in your worship guide, but I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to paraphrase it. So the Lord shows up to Abraham and he, and, you know, when Abraham was still in Mesopotamia and he, and he told him, the Lord told Abraham, he said, go to a land that I'm going to, that I, that I'm going to show you. And so what did Abraham do? He got up and went. After Abraham's dad died, he landed right here where you yourselves, and you imagine every time Stephen says in this, in this message, you know, people say his speech, well, it wasn't a speech, you know, it's a message. And I feel like every time he says you to them, he's getting in their face a little bit and he's pointing at them. So he says, <clears throat> after his dad died, he landed right here where you yourselves live and Abraham didn't even own one square foot he's talking about Israel Abraham he didn't even own one square foot but the Lord did promise to give him uh to give the the country to him and to his descendants even though at the time that the Lord said this Abraham has zero kids and God let him know also that his offspring would be slaves in a foreign land they wouldn't be slaves inside of Israel but they'd be taken away they'd be slaves in a foreign land they'd be brutalized for about 400 years but God said, I'll take care of this. You know, God takes care of stuff. He's a stuff taker care of. Or God takes care of stuff. And he said, I'll take care of these slaveholders. And I'll bring my people out. Well, why? I'm bring my people out so that they can worship me in this place. And then he assures Abraham. And he makes a covenant with Abraham. And he signed that covenant in Abraham's flesh by circumcision. Same with Isaac. Same with Jacob. Then Jacob's 12 sons became the ancestors of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Each one faithfully passing on this covenant sign. Now I'm going to get rid of my Stephen for a second. 
Because now Stephen turns to this, this first rejection. Because what Stephen's doing, he's given this, like this history of Israel in, in five or ten minutes. And he turns to this first rejection. And those forefathers, the patriarchs, Jacob's sons, Joseph's brothers, they reject God's plan and they schemed against God's chosen servant, Joseph. I'm going to jump back into Stephen's message starting in about verse 9 through about verse 16. And Stephen tells him, he says, the brothers were crazy jealous. And he's talking about Joseph's brothers. They were crazy jealous and they sold Joseph off into slavery in Egypt. But God had his back. You know, God's got your back. You know, that's this huge principle in scripture. Richard didn't use those words. But when he's driving up to, to, to Virginia last year, about this time last year, God had his back, right? God had Derek's back. God had their family's back. He's got your back. And so Stephen says, you know, God had his back. He rescued him. Joseph we're talking about. And he teed it up so that Pharaoh would put him in charge of the entire country, including Pharaoh's own personal affairs. And later on, this nasty famine hits Egypt and the whole, really that, that whole area. And our fathers were starving. He tells the Sanhedrin, our fathers are starving. And Jacob heard that there was food in Egypt and he sent our fathers. And when he says our fathers, he's talking about the patriarchs. He's talking about the, the, the ancestor of the, uh, uh, of the 12 tribes. Our fathers, he sent them out to scout. And there was food. And they went back to Egypt a second time to get some food. Everybody was starving at the time. And on that second visit, Joseph revealed his true identity to his brothers. And he introduced his family to Pharaoh. And then Joseph sent word and sent for his father, Jacob, and everybody else in the family to come. And there was 75 of them in all. And that's how Jacob's family got to Egypt. And Jacob died, Stephen says. He tells him, Jacob died and, and our fathers died after him and all of them are buried in Shechem in a tomb that Abraham had bought jump out of this message again so then in mass what happened is they rejected Joseph but God delivered Joseph and God redeemed him you know the Lord redeems things that are jacked up right me and you are jacked up but God redeems broken things and so God redeemed him and in fact uh, it, is, it is through that redemption that God saved the forefathers, the patriarchs. He saved them, physically saved them from famine and from starvation. And now we're going to see the second rejection. That the people rejected God's second servant, Moses. So we're going to be about, Stephen goes on, probably about verse 17 through about 29 or 30. And so he says in about this 400 year time span that God promised Abraham for deliverance. The population of our people, and this is Stephen, and remember, Stephen talking to them. Our people, our population exploded in Egypt. Now, the new Pharaoh in Egypt had never even heard of Joseph. He was merciless. He even forced us to abandon our, our newborn babies. And that's the time that Moses is born. Beautiful Moses in God's eyes. He was hidden at home for about three months. And when, the, when they couldn't hide him anymore, he was put outside. As a matter of fact, he's put in a, in a basket on the Nile River. And immediately he's rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter, she cared for little Moses like he was hers. 
Moses was educated in the best schools. He went to Harvard or Yale or Cornell or somewhere. He's, re he's educated in the finest schools. Moses was a thinker. Moses was a rocking athlete. God was raising up this guy, and he was protecting his servant Moses. When Moses is about 40, he sees an Egyptian taskmaster abusing one, one, of, the, one of his Hebrew brothers, and he, and he jumps in and he kills, he whooped and killed uh, this Egyptian dude, and he figures that his brothers would be glad that they would even see him maybe as, as God's deliverer, but they didn't quite see it that way. The next day, two of them are fighting. He tries to break it up, and he tells them, shake hands, y'all, and, and make up. But the one who started that fight said, who died and put you in charge? You're going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And Moses is like, keep that on the down low. We don't, I don't want people to hear that. They rejected God's servant again. So Moses heard that, that guy say that, and he said, I'm out. And he runs for his life, and he runs into exile in Midian, where two sons were born to him. You jump out again. So now we see rejection again of one of God's servants. The people continued rejecting Moses. And in, in fact, Stephen argues they reject God. Let's jump back in to Stephen's message in about verse 30. So 40 years later, in the wilderness around Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to him in the flames of a burning bush. Moses couldn't believe his eyes, so he goes up to take a closer look. And he heard, God, heard God's voice, probably his deep James Earl Jones-ish kind of voice, right? And he says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That scares Moses out of his skin. And so Moses shuts his eyes and he turns away from the presence of the Lord. And God said, kneel now, kneel and pray. He says, you're on holy ground. The Lord says, I've seen and I've noticed and I... I have compassion over the agony of my people. And I've heard their groans and I've come to help them. And so he says to Moses, get ready because you're heading back over there. And Stephen goes on to the Sanhedrin and he says, this is the same Moses that they'd earlier rejected and say, you know, saying, who died and put you in charge? You know, this is the Moses that God sent as a, as, as a redeemer and as a ruler. And Moses did lead our people out of slavery. Amazing things happened, right? There were, there were all these God winks. There was these plagues. And all throughout Egypt, stuff was going on. And what happened down, y'all, y'all remember what happens down at the Red Sea. All out in the wilderness for 40 years and they're wandering. God is doing amazing things. You and your people, you know it, you saw it. Our people, our mamas and dads and grandparents, we, we saw it. They told us. All throughout the generations, they told us what happened in the wilderness. We were there. We saw manna from heaven falling out of, falling out of the sky. God had our backs. We were there, and we know what happened. And this is the very Moses that said to his folks, God will raise up a prophet just like me from your descendants. Y'all, this is the Moses that stood in the gap between the burning bush and your father's Assembled in the wilderness. And he, this is the Moses that gives us life-giving words. The Lord's words were given to Moses. And Moses recorded those words. And they were passed down to us. Words 
that our fathers ignored. How long have we spent ignoring this? So Stephen is laying it on them. Life-giving words that the Lord gave Moses. And Stephen says, we've ignored them. Our fathers craved the, the ways of Egypt. They whined to Aaron. Make us gods that we can see and follow. This Moses who got us out here in the middle of nowhere. And he goes up on the mountain. Who knows what even happened to him? Stephen says, y'all remember, right? They made an idol, a big golden calf, and they brought sacrifices to it. And they congratulated each other on the wonderful religious programs that they had put together. Think churches do that today? Let's pat each other on the back about all our programs, right? Meanwhile, we're ignoring the very word of God. That's what Stephen is telling them. So God acted through, I'm stepping out again. God acted through Moses to save and to redeem his people. He sends Moses to bring his living word to them in the wilderness. God and Moses were rejected yet again. And they're worshiping idols. They're worshiping idols. You know, you can get them, you can get them out of Egypt, but it's hard to get to Egypt out of them. And they saw it happening right in front of them. So, so far, Stephen has taken them in 10 minutes from Abraham through Moses and all the dumb stuff and all the rejection in those probably five or 600 years. And then we get to verse 42. So we're going to put the revised Ed version translation up for a minute. And we're going to jump back into the CJB. I want to read you these 10 verses, 10-ish verses. And then we're going to walk through them. Start in verse 42. So God turned away from them and gave them over to worship the stars. As has been written in the book of the prophets. People of Israel, it was not to me that you offered slaughtered animals and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness. God says, it wasn't to me that you were doing that. No, 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 no. You carried the tent of Molech and the star of your god Raphan, the idols you made so that you could worship them. He says, therefore, I will send you in exile beyond Babel, which is Babylon. I'll send you in exile beyond Babylon. Verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness. That's the tabernacle. All of you have heard of the tabernacle. So our fathers had the tent of witness or the tabernacle in the wilderness. And it had been made just as God who spoke to Moses had ordered it made. According to the pattern that Moses had seen. Later on our fathers who had received it brought it in with Yehoshua, that's Joshua. When they took the land away from the nations that God drove out before them. And so it was until the days of David. He enjoyed God's favor and asked if he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, that's the God of Jacob. And Shlomo, Solomon, did build him a house. But Hiel-Yon, that's the Most High. But the Most High does not live in places made by hand, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, says Adonai the Lord. And the earth is my footstool. What kind of house could you possibly build for me? What kind of place could you devise for my rest? Didn't I myself make all these things? Stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You continually oppose the Holy Spirit. You do the same things your fathers did. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
They killed those who told in advance about the coming of the tzaddik. That's the righteous one. They killed those who told in advance about the coming of the righteous one. And now you've become you. You can see him doing it too. You have become his betrayers. And you have become his murderers. You who received the law. You who received the Torah as having been delivered by angels. But you don't keep it, Stephen says. So you see Stephen laying down charges, several charges on them. And the charges are eye-openers as, as to how God viewed, how God saw Israel in the Old Testament Scriptures. Charge number one is this. The people, Israel, they didn't worship God. They acted like they worshiped God, but they were really worshiping false idols. They're really worshiping false gods. Verse 42 says, So God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the stars, as was written in the book of the prophets. And he says, People, it wasn't, the Lord says, People, it wasn't to me that you were, you were slaughtering the animals. It wasn't to me that you were offering sacrifices. So they worshiped the sun, and the, they fell into idol worship. They're worshiping the sun, the moon, the, the stars, zodiac stuff, astrology stuff. This was an absolute carryover of the Egyptian idolatry as they come out of Egypt, out of slavery. And it's a dramatic charge that Stephen puts on them. You know, when Israel, the charge is this, when, when, when you're making the offerings and you're making the sacrifices to God, you're really worshiping false gods. And that's a strong thing that he says to them. And that is that their hearts and their thoughts were upon the world. Their hearts and their thoughts were upon Egypt and the uh, idolatrous gods of Egypt. And God's response to that was the same as the people's act. What they had sown, they were going to reap. They'd given themselves up to the worship of, of false gods, and God gave them up to do as they pleased. That's the history of Israel, y'all. It's the history of his people. God gave them up to their own lusts. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 21, he wrote that they have zero excuse because although they know who God is, they do not glorify him as God or thank him. On the contrary, they have become futile in their thinking and their undiscerning hearts have become darkened. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. In fact, they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for mere images like a mortal human being or birds or, or animals or reptiles. They know who he is, but they, they, their hearts have just been darkened. Their minds have been darkened. So they worshiped false gods, charge number one. Charge number two is this. That the people didn't carry the tabernacle of God. They carried a tabernacle of false gods. Verse 43 says, No, you carried the tent of Molech and the stars of your god Raphan, the idols that you made so that you could worship them. Therefore, I'm going to send you into exile beyond Babylon. So maybe publicly, y'all, maybe outwardly, they were carrying the tabernacle. Wherever they went, publicly, they're carrying it. But their hearts and their minds were on false gods. Molech was, the, was a, 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 like a sun god that demanded child sacrifice. Raphan was some uh, astrological god that, that really was probably the, he was represented by, by Saturn. And it was the worship really of the, of the planet Saturn. So God's response is to give them up to their own lust. Just as they carried the tabernacle around, but their minds and their hearts 
were focused on these crazy false gods, God gave them up to captivity beyond Babylon. That was the cost that they paid. And none of those people within earshot of Stephen's voice could have any doubt of the historical accuracy of every single word that Stephen said. Charge number two. Charge number three is this, that they were without excuse. They're without excuse. Time is no different, y'all. We are without excuse. Look at verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle. We had the tabernacle in the, in the wilderness, and they, they made it just like God had told them to make it. Later on, Stephen says, our fathers who had received it brought it in with Joshua when they took the land away from the nations that God had driven out, out of Israel. So it was just like that until the days of David, and he enjoyed God's favor, and he asked, could he, David wanted to make the, the, wanted to build the temple, but ultimately Solomon did. So they had no excuse. Why, why did they have no excuse? Because they were greatly blessed, y'all. God wanted to be in a special, unique, covenantal relationship with them. He wants to be in a special, unique, covenantal relationship with all of us. That's his, that's his desire. He wants to be in relationship with us. And, he, and we missed the blessing. Israel missed the blessings. They just missed them. And he wanted them to be a special people. And, and, and he would be their God and they would be his people. I think he had blessed them multiple things. I want to give you three things that I think were three big things that he blessed them with. He blessed them with the tabernacle of his presence. The tabernacle of his testimony, sometimes it's called. God had shown Moses the pattern, this, this template, this figure, this picture of the tabernacle. And Moses constructed it after this image, exactly this image that God gave him. God had blessed his people with his presence and his favor in their leaders. And in, in this message that Stephen gives us, he talks about Joshua and he talks about David and he talks about Solomon, all three of these men had the favor and the blessings of God upon them. So the people were blessed through godly leadership. Don't you think people are blessed through godly leadership when there's godly leadership? The problem is most leadership is ungodly. But this is a perfect image of these three men and the godly leadership that they provide. And God had blessed his people with the temple. David wanted bad to build the temple. But it was Solomon that God appointed to construct it. It took about 20 years. It was finished around 950 B.C. And when the Jews returned from captivity to Jerusalem, Zerubbabel had rebuilt it around 515 or so B.C. Herod the Great, y'all remember Herod the Great? Herod the Great's on the throne when Jesus is born. Herod the Great rebuilt that temple about 500 or so years later and made it one of the wonders of the world. And it was in that temple that the Jews gloried. And the point is this, by being so blessed, the people were at Israel, the people were absolutely, positively, one million percent without excuse in their rejection of the Lord. They had every single opportunity available, yet they still chose the world instead of God. Well, how about us? We have every single opportunity, particularly in America, particularly in the South in America. There is a church 
every half a mile, y'all. There's a church every half a mile. Jesus is everywhere. We can scream and yell and holler about prayer being taken out of the school. And th if you can't get saved in the South in the United States, your heart is darkened. Right? We laugh and giggle, but that's the truth. You're blind. You're blind. YouTube, Facebook, a church all over the place. We have willfully rejected the Lord. Don't reject the Lord. The consequences are grave. And we choose. We choose. Number three. Number four is this. The people, they didn't really understand the temple. And Stephen lays it on them. He's like, you really don't understand the temple. Look at verse 40, 48. The Most High doesn't live in a place made by hand. He says, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. It's this question, what kind of house could you possibly build for me? What kind of place could you possibly build and devise for my rest? Didn't I make, the Lord says, didn't I make all these things myself? Well, they didn't understand the temple. They thought they had God in a little box, right? We ever do that? I think we got God in a little, little genie box. And when we need him, we can rub the little box and he'll pop out and do some tricks for us, and then we'll put him back in because we really don't want him to see everything in our life. Only, only when we need something. But the reality, Stephen tells him, God's not limited to one particular place. Listen to what Solomon, who is the builder of this great temple, what he said when the Ark of the Covenant is brought in. This is from 1 Kings chapter 8. Temple's being dedicated. Solomon is praying the dedication over the temple. And we're not talking about a little bitty thing. We're talking about something that took 20 years to build. Magnificent temple. And, so, and the, Ark is brought, the Ark of the Covenant is brought in and, and Solomon is dedicating it. And Solomon says this in 1 Kings chapter 8. He says, but can God actually live on the earth? Why, heaven itself, even the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. So how much less this house I have built. And so what Solomon says is this huge truth. God never intended, ever intended, for men to think that his presence was limited to the temple. That that's the only place that he hangs out in the temple. Now, y'all, I was taught that exact opposite of that as a child. That that is where God hung out. That that was the only place that he hung out. And nothing changed until the diaspora, until the Jews were scattered across the world. That the temple was God's place, and that's where he was, and that's why Jews gathered to the temple in Jerusalem. But Stephen's point struck home because, you know, think about it. Jesus taught that men must worship God in spirit and in truth. And this is in John chapter 4 in verse 23 or 4. I don't think it's on. Yes, yeah, not on the screen. Now note that these words that Jesus talked about when he says that we got to worship him in spirit and truth, they're spoken to a Samaritan of all people. Dirty Samaritans, unclean Samaritans, half-breed Samaritans. Well, that's what Jesus himself said to that Samaritan. So, so one of the points, any, any, uh, uh, anybody of any race, any land could worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as long as they're worshiping in spirit and in truth. A particular place and a particular building or temple was not necessary. Now, Stephen recognized the importance of the temple. 
but he knew that it paled in importance to, to the importance of the Lord himself. God is not limited. He doesn't live only in a house of worship. He doesn't. He lives wherever, wherever hearts of faith are open to receive him. And Solomon knew this when he dedicated the temple. Is your worship confined, your worship of God, is it confined to 1.7 Sundays a month? Because the average person in the United States that says they're a church attender goes to church 1.7 times a month. So is your worship of the God that created everything, is it confined to those 1.7 times a month? God wants all of you. He wants you to worship him all the time. <clears throat> Listen, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, whom you received from God? Your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. He wants to live with you, in you, through you, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. That's what he wants. And yes, come to church. Absolutely. But you can't come to church one or two times a month and you separate that. That's my faith life. But when I walk out the door and I go out into the world, it's a whole different. It's a separation of the secular from the holy. Y'all, that ain't right. God wants all of you. He wants to be involved in every aspect of your life. His spirit ought to permeate your work life. His spirit ought to permeate your married life. His spirit ought to permeate when you're in school. Every sphere of your life ought to be reeking of Jesus. Right? Amen. Y'all awake? Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Charge four. Charge five is this. The people, Stephen says, of this present generation... They're resisting the Holy Spirit. This is when he really lays it on them, starting in verse 51. He says, stiff-necked people. Y'all, by the way, that's an idiom, and that is a slap in their face. He might as well have walked up and started punching folks out. He says, stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you continually oppose the Holy Spirit. You do the very same things your daddy did. That's what Stephen said to him. This is a critical critical point in in the message the hammer's coming down he had responded brilliantly to to the accusations that are being made against him and if his sermon has a major theme verse this is it Stephen accused them of being a product of their family tree they were just like their fathers the apple don't fall too far those men that sat in front of him judging him in judgment of him, ready to kill him. They had not broken the cycle of sin that had been passed down from generation to generation to generation down to them. Stiff-necked is the same term that God used of his people in Exodus chapter 33. And it looks back at their, their unbending stubbornness in their unjust and their unholy causes and their absolute refusal to repent, to turn back towards God. Stiff-necked, stubborn, constantly rejecting God's Spirit. 
constantly refusing to repent. People refuse to repent. Half the churches in our country preach a gospel without repentance. It don't work that way. And people have this jacked up view of repentance like it doesn't taste good. But the, what they, they don't see what's on the other side of the repentance. It's like this barrier that they, because they love their sin more than they love their repentance. At the end of the day, they love their sin more than they love their God. But they, they mess up the view of it because what's on the other side of the repentance is this beautiful relationship with the creator of the universe. And Israel for 3,500 years, continuing on to today, refused to turn back towards the creator. So they're stiff-necked. Stephen refers to their uncircumcised hearts, their uncircumcised ears. Really points to the fact that though this audience that he's looking at, remember this is a bunch of old Jewish men, that had literally been circumcised, bore on their bodies the sign of the covenant with Abraham, their hearts were untouched, their hearts were unbroken, and their hearts were unavailable to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Yes, they were circumcised. Physically bore the, the battle scar of the covenant. But nothing had happened inside. They were resisting the Holy Spirit. They were willfully obstructing his leading by disobedience and rebellion. So their uncircumcised heart pictures this some kind of religious activity, in this case it's circumcision, with no corresponding internal reality. No, in other words, they had the external kind of down. To include the rules and the regs. But there was no internal change. You know, you can't be, you can't be saved without a change of heart. I can get circumcised 15 times. I don't want to be circumcised 15 times. But if there's, no, if there's no internal change, like I can come to church every Sunday. I can feed the hungry. Y'all, I can do all these little checkbox things. And then at the end of the day, I can hear from, from him, get away from me, I never knew you. There's got to be internal change. And when Stephen says your hearts are uncircumcised, that is exactly what he's saying. You got the external. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. You got the external down, but you're missing. And you got the law down. You got the technicalities of the law. You got, this, you, you, you got the letter of the law, but you have completely booted the, the spirit of the law to the curb. You haven't been touched. You haven't been changed. You haven't been converted by the Lord. So I'm telling y'all today, man, make sure that your heart is devoted to God and that your activities reflect that devotion. Does that make sense? I scribbled it up there if you can read it. Make sure your heart is devoted to the Lord and that your activities reflect that reality because your activities are not going to result in your heart change. Your heart change is going to result in the activities. Y'all tracking with me? That's a critical thing that Stephen is saying to them. Charge number five. Charge number six is that the people persecuted the prophets, the very servants, the very prophets who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and they killed the Messiah. 
The people persecuted the prophets and they killed the Messiah. Look at verse 52 and 3. Which of, the, which of the prophets did your father, Stephen's saying this now, which of the prophets did y'all not persecute? You killed those who told in advance of the coming of the Messiah. And now you, you people have become the betrayers. You people have become the murderers. You, you're the very ones who the Lord gave the law to, but you don't keep it. And so indeed, scads of the prophets had been persecuted or killed. Scads of them, Uriah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Tradition says that King Manasseh killed, uh, or had Isaiah killed. Nasty king. You know, now all the kings in Israel were not wonderful folks. Manasseh was a nasty one. Amos is killed. Zechariah is killed. Elijah. Jesus had made the same charges against the Jews in Matthew 23. He puts it on them. Jesus himself, he says, woe to you. Y'all, you don't want Jesus saying woe to you. You know, we don't even use the word woe. I don't want Jesus saying woe to me. And he says to him, woe to you, you hypocrites, you, 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 you Torah teachers, you, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, listen to this, this is super indicting. Jesus said that you say... Had we lived when our fathers did, we would never have taken part in the killing of the prophets. And Jesus says, in that statement, you testify against yourselves that you are worthy descendants of those who murdered the prophets. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus tells his parable about how the Jews had constantly rejected God's messages, constantly rejected uh, and persecuted his messengers. Not only that had the Jews killed the prophets who foretold of the coming of the Messiah, but they, they had become his very betrayers, his very murderers. It is inconceivable, y'all. How could the, the, the guys that Stephen's talking to, how could they not see their, their dads and their granddads and their great-granddads, how could they not see the tendency to totally miss what God is doing right in the middle of it? Right in the middle of their lives, how do they miss what God is doing? How do we miss it? I would say consider we miss it all the time. we got to have our antennas up to see what God is doing. If it's something, when, you know, when you see something happen and it's a, some wonderful thing, we're so quick to say, look what I did. Look what I did. Recognize that it's God tell you something happened last week. It was unbelievable. Susan's aunt, Sarah, died, did the funeral last Tuesday. Tuesday, right? Yeah, did the funeral last Tuesday. Monday, um, I was in a, uh, I, I had left. I, I got the pleasure of, of being able to spend four or five days with Aunt Sarah's Bible, which is so cool, y'all. All the scribbling, and it's probably what your Bible looks like. All this scribbling and highlight and underline and circled and names and prayers. It's just this beautiful thing. And Aunt Sese was kind of Susan's mama passed away young. And Aunt Sarah was kind of her mom. And she acted as a really, a, she was a grandmother to my two sons. Sweet, sweet, sweet lady. And, and so I was in a place where I, I didn't have the Bible. And I called Susan because the, somehow I just got impressed 
on, and I was finishing up the message for the funeral because I, I had the pleasure of doing the funeral. And, and, uh, and somehow in my mind, I thought of Revelation 21.4, and, and I, and I, but I, was, I didn't have her Bible with me. And so I called Susan, and, and I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm about to get in the shower. I said, can you stop and go look in Sarah's Bible, see if Revelation 21.4 is highlighted? And she said, okay. And she goes out there, and she got on the phone. She said, of course it's highlighted. I said, all right. That's a little confirmation that I need to get that in the message somewhere, somehow. And about three or four minutes later, my phone rang again, and it was Susan. And she said, I said, I thought you were getting in the shower. She said, yeah, but I had to tell you this. She always listens to a couple of pastors. Um, this is TMI. But she listens. When she's in the shower, she's got this little speaker, and she's listening to two different pastors preach. And this was like on Monday, I think. And so the message from the day before by one of these guys he says, we're going to be in a book today that we're, we, don't usually, we aren't usually in, but we're going to be in a book, the book of the Revelation, last book in the New Testament. We're going to be in a chapter that we really haven't ever preached out of, and that's chapter 21, and we're going to land, and we're going to be in verse 4. And so all this happened like within four minutes probably. I got this image in my mind. Sarah had it highlighted from probably 25 years ago in her Bible, and this preacher is preaching to my wife while she's in the shower about Revelation 21.4. Y'all, it just so happens. Y'all, somebody, here's what I know. Here's what I trust, and I probably will never be able to, uh, I probably won't ever know who or why, but I trust and I believe and I have absolute, utter faith and confidence somebody in that funeral on Tuesday needed to hear Revelation 21.4 absolutely beyond a shadow. It wasn't Ed. It wasn't Susan. It was God kind of did all of that stuff. We got to recognize that. And Stephen is like, how do you people, how have you people missed this for a thousand years? The masses of people yawned when Abraham packed up his belongings and left the civilized world to go where he didn't even know where. Think about it. God told Abraham, I'm going to send you, but I'm not going to tell you where you're going to go. But that's, that's what Abraham was told. But what did Abraham do? He packed his suitcase and he hit the road. Joseph's brothers, the literal sons of Israel, jealously sold their future Savior into slavery. The children of Israel reject the, their deliverer, the one that delivered them out of slavery, Moses. From the start to the finish of Moses' ministry, he's rejected. How could they be the very ones that, that were the receivers of the law? As ordained by angels and not kept it. God himself had been rejected in their ancestors constantly jumping in and out of idolatry. God's Messiah, the righteous one, the Mashiach in Hebrew, the savior of the world was the latest victim of, of their rebellious and disobedient hearts. And they're about to kill another one. His name is Stephen. Y'all, these guys were surrounded by truth. But the truth never penetrated their hearts. It never made it from maybe their brain to their heart. Me and you are surrounded by truth. We preach the Bible here. We have Bible studies constantly during the week. We're surrounded by truth. And yet somehow we miss it. And verse 53 says that they received the law, but they didn't keep it. Instead of the law, instead of the word convicting them, 
and changing their lives, the law became a weapon to condemn other people. And not just to condemn other people, but to justify themselves. Because we twist, you know, we twist around the scripture to convict the other guy's sin. We use it to justify ourselves somehow. Which just makes us just like them. We're, we're maybe we've somehow skirted and kept the, the, the letter of it. But we have absolutely crushed the spirit of the law. And the only way that we can avoid a similar fate as they had is to humble ourselves before the Lord. Rather than using scripture to condemn folks, apply it to your life first. Make the required changes that the word of God says about your life. And then hug on and love on the person sitting next to you. People have rejected his word and his Messiah and his servants for millennia. Stephen masterfully points this out in Acts 7. It's just kind of always been that way. People reject. And God's servants almost always call us to repentance. And in return, people say, nah, it's okay, I'm good. Again, they think repentance doesn't taste good, but they don't understand what's on the other side of it. So these Jewish leaders, rejection of Jesus in Stephen's day, it's just one more example of Israel's rebellion against and their rejection of the Lord. And in many, many, many ways, it is no different today. If you've been rejecting him for five years, 10 years, 20 years, 25 years, I don't know. And rejection doesn't have to be, you know, you got a pentagram tattooed on your forehead and you're screaming Satan did. No. If you haven't answered the question, you just haven't given an answer to the gospel, then your answer is no. Do y'all understand that? A no answer is a no answer. So I don't know, like I don't know what your response is today. I know the scripture calls all of us to respond to the gospel. And if you don't know him, your response should be to get to know him. Remember, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So if he does not live it inside of you, I'm going to say your response should be to consider that offer that he makes. And let me just tell you how easy it is. I got to turn away from my sin and I turn towards the Lord. And I believe that he died on the cross to pay a penalty that was my penalty to pay. It wasn't his to pay. You get that too, don't you? It wasn't his to pay. It was mine to pay. But in grace and mercy and the most amazing love ever in the history of the world, he jumps up on a cross and took the hit for me. And I just got to believe in that and believe that he walked out of a grave alive. That he went in it dead and he came out alive. And I believe that. And I place saving faith and trust in that. Not just that I mentally like, um, like ascend to the facts. But that I trust in it. I trust that I'm saved. That's the gospel, y'all. That may be your response. You may have been saved. You may be a believer for 25 years, but the gospel calls you to respond. I don't know what that response is. That response may, may, may be, I need to forgive somebody. I've been harboring unforgiveness for 25 years. That person may be across the room. If that's the case, get up right now and go over there and forgive them. It may be that, that you need to ask forgiveness from somebody. 
They may be on the other end of, of, of your telephone this afternoon. Or they may be in this room. If they're in this room, go do it right now. You ain't going to bother me. But they, you may need to call somebody. The Lord may have put somebody on your mind. He may have just impressed you with somebody's name that, that you need to pray. Aunt Sarah prayed for my salvation for 20 years. I met her in 1981 in Thanksgiving of 1981 when Susan and I were dating in high school. She knew that I was Jewish. She prayed for my salvation. For 20 years, I had no idea she'd done it. If I had known, I probably would have told her, I don't need that. I don't even know what you're talking about. Pray for somebody else. I don't need it. 20 years, y'all. So the Lord may be putting somebody's image or something in your mind. Come up to this cross, hit the floor, and pray for them. Like, I don't know. I know the gospel calls us to respond. It may be I've been threatening to get in a Bible study for 10 years, but I've just never done it. Maybe that's your response today. You, you get in a Bible study. You start having fellowship with other believers. It may be to get in a, a life group. Like, I don't know. I know the gospel calls for a response. Y'all pray with me. Lord, we love you today. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we just get our, try to get our arms around how undeserved it is. Lord, if there are people in this room or watching on YouTube or Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is, Lord, that don't know you, Lord, I would pray that they would repent right now, turn away from their sin, turn towards you, place saving trust and faith in you, cry out to you to save them. And we know and we trust that you will. Lord, I pray that you put some kind of little burden on everybody in this room's heart that, that there, would, there would be a response to your word. Lord, that there would be fruit that would come from this. And Lord, tomorrow we understand it may be a raisin, but six months from now it may be a watermelon. Lord, we just pray that you would help us to grow, that you would walk with us, walk alongside of us. And Lord, I invite as we, as we worship through music here uh, in this last song, I invite anybody in this room that has any kind of burdens, and it may be a burden for another person, to just come down here and pray. Lord, we love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.